This is section 41 of Newspaper Articles by Mark Twain. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Newspaper Articles by Mark Twain, section 41. The San Francisco Daily Morning Call, September 1864, part 2. The San Francisco Daily Morning Call, September 8, 1864. Earthquake. The regular semi-monthly earthquake arrived at ten minutes to ten o'clock yesterday morning, thirty-six hours ahead of time. It is supposed it was sent earlier to shake up the Democratic State Convention, but if this was the case, the calculation was awkwardly made, for it fell short by about two hours. The convention did not meet until noon. Either the earthquake, or the convention, or both combined, made the atmosphere mighty dense and sulphurous all day. If it was the Democrats alone, they do not smell good, and it certainly cannot be healthy to have them around. The San Francisco Daily Morning Call, September 8, 1864. Beautiful Work. The ladies should examine some of those rare specimens of embroidery on exhibition at the Mechanics' Fair. Among the finest is a tapestry picture of a royal party in a barge, names unbeknowns to us, by W. S. Canaan of Healdsburg. A large portrait of G. Washington, by Mrs. Chapman Yates, of San Jose, and a cat and a pile of kittens, by Mrs. Juliana Bayer. We do not like the expression of the old cat's countenance, but the kittens are faultless, especially the blind brown one on the right. So perfectly true to nature are those young cats, that it is easy to see that every schoolboy who comes along is seized with an earnest desire to drown them. The San Francisco Daily Morning Call, September 8, 1864. Captain Kidd's Statement Captain Kidd, of the ill-fated steamer Washoe, has been accused, according to telegraphic reports from Sacramento, of ungenerous and unfeeling conduct in remaining with the wreck of his boat after the explosion, instead of accompanying the maimed and dying sufferers by the catastrophe to Sacramento. In defense of himself, he says he was satisfied that the wounded would be as well and kindly cared for on the antelope as if he were present himself, and that he thought the most humane course for him to pursue would be to stay behind with some of his men and search among the ruins of his boat for helpless victims and rescue them before they became submerged by the gradually sinking vessel he believed some of the scalded and frantic victims had wandered into the woods and he wished to find them also he says that his course was prompted by no selfish or heartless motive but he acted as his conscience told him was for the best we heartily believe it, and we should be sorry to believe less of any man with a human soul in his body. His search resulted in the finding of five corpses after the antelope left, and these he sent up on the small steamer which visited the wreck on the following day. However, he need not distress himself about the strictures of a few thoughtless men, for that class of people would have blamed him just as cordially no matter what course he had pursued." Whether one or more flues collapsed, or whether one or more boilers exploded, or whether the cause of the accident was that too much steam was being carried, or that the iron was defective, or the workmanship bad, are all questions which must remain unsolved until the washoe is raised. At present, and so far as anything that is actually known about the matter goes, one of these conjectures is just as plausible as another. 
Captain Kidd thinks the cause lay in the inefficient workmanship of the boilermakers. The surviving engineer says he looked at the steam-gauge scarcely two minutes before the explosion, and it indicated 114 pounds to the square inch. She was allowed to carry 140. He tried the steam-cocks at the same time and found two of them full of water. The boat carried 120 to 125 pounds of steam from San Francisco to Benicia, and from here to where the accident occurred, it was customary to carry less as the water grew shoaler, because, as every boatman knows, a steamer cannot make as good time or steer as well in shoal water with a full head of steam as she can with less. From Rio Vista to Freeport, it was customary to carry about a hundred and ten, and above Freeport about seventy pounds of steam. The Chrysopolis was far ahead, and had not been seen for more than half an hour, and since the last collision Captain Kidd had given orders that the Washoe should be kept behind the line boats and out of danger. He was making no effort to gain upon the Chrysopolis, and had no expectation of seeing her again below Sacramento. Gas and Lombard, of Sacramento, contracted to build boilers for the Washoe, which would stand a pressure of two hundred and twenty-five pounds, and secure the inspector's permission to carry a hundred and fifty. Captain Kidd appointed Mr. Foster, one of the best engineers on the coast, to stay at the boiler works and personally superintend the work. The workmanship was bad. The boilers leaked in streams around the flues, and the inspector would only allow a certificate for a hundred and thirteen pounds of steam. The boat made seven trips, but the leaks did not close up, as was expected. Gas and Lombard then contracted with boiler-makers here to take out the flues and make the boilers over again, so that they would stand a hundred and forty pounds. Captain Kidd relinquished ten pounds from the original contract. It was done, at a cost of seven thousand dollars, about what a new set would have cost, and after a cold-water test of two hundred and ten pounds, the inspector cheerfully gave permission to carry a hundred and forty. With a margin like this, the boilers could hardly have exploded under a pressure of a hundred and fourteen pounds, unless the workmanship was in some sort defective, or the severe test applied by the inspector had overstrained the boilers, or unless, perhaps, a rivet or so might have been started on some previous trip under a heavier head of steam, and this source of weakness had increased in magnitude until it finally culminated in a general let-go under a smaller head of steam. The sinking of the boat is attributed to the breaking off of the feed-pipes which supply the boilers with water, and which extend through the bottom of the boat, and as the wreck settled and careened, a larger volume of water poured in through the open ash-ports forward of the fire-doors. The boat sank very gradually, and had not settled entirely until nearly three hours had elapsed. But as we said in the first place, the real cause of this dreadful calamity cannot be ascertained until the wreck is raised and the machinery exposed to view. Captain Kidd leaves today with the necessary apparatus for raising his boat, and Mr. Owens, who built her, will accompany him and superintend the work. It will be several months, however, before the Washoe will be in a condition to resume her trips. Captain Kidd says he would raise the boat anyhow to satisfy himself as to the cause of the accident even if he never meant to run her again. Captain Kidd feels the late calamity as deeply as any one could, and as any one not utterly heartless must. 
That his impulses are kind and generous all will acknowledge who remember that he kept his boat running night and day in time of the flood, and brought to this city hundreds of sufferers by that misfortune, without one cent of charge for passage, beds, or food. The San Francisco Daily Morning Call, September 8, 1864. Democratic State Convention. C. L. Weller, chairman of the Democratic State Central Committee, called the convention to order yesterday noon at Turnverein Hall. He observed in the opening speech that it was the most important Democratic convention which had met since the adoption of the Federal Constitution, inasmuch as upon it would devolve to decide whether our liberties were to be preserved or destroyed. Berea Brown was chosen temporary chairman, and temporary secretaries and a sergeant-at-arms were also appointed. A committee on credentials was appointed, consisting of one delegate from each county. A committee on permanent organization was chosen in the same manner. The convention then adjourned until 3 p.m. Afternoon Session As soon as the convention met, the work of forming the committee on credentials and permanent organization was begun, when the discovery was shortly made that Charles L. Weller and Beriah Brown held proxies for the San Diego and Shasta delegations, respectively. This riled Coffroth of Sacramento, and expelled from his system a two-hour speech, which had probably been festering there all day, on account of the evident disposition of the San Francisco delegation to rule the roost. He gave it to them hot and strong, and accused them of gobbling up everything else they could get their hands on. He was bitter on the San Francisco boys. Weller replied that he did not conceive himself guilty of any very heinous crime, in being the recipient of a proxy, and reminded the convention, in a general way, that he had always been a good and consistent Democrat, and had suffered martyrdom for the cause. Coffroth hit him back, said he was ready to bring flowers and lay them at the feet of any who had actually suffered martyrdom, and then ungenerously insinuated that he didn't see it. He couldn't recognize a martyr in a man whose misfortunes were all aces in a deal for a congressional nomination, perhaps. So the afternoon was wasted in wrangling, and actual work cannot begin in the convention until today. Downey, Weller, and McEwen are the most prominent aspirants for the nomination in this district, and Coffroth in the middle district, as we are informed by a chaste and reliable copperhead. The permanent officers of the convention are as follows. Chairman J. W. Mandeville of Tuolumne, Secretaries John D. Goodwin of Plumas, T. L. Thompson of Sonoma, and Barclay Henley of San Francisco. A committee on resolutions consisting of five members was appointed. They are to report today. The San Francisco Daily Morning Call, September 9, 1864. Mrs. Hall's Smelting Furnace we would call the attention of all persons interested in mines and mining machinery to several bars of copper and galena which are exposed to view on a table in front of the hot-air engine in the mechanics fair the bar modestly marked galena contains more silver than anything else and was smelted from ordinary ore in mrs hall's famous smelting furnace by her daughter the time occupied by the young lady in the production of this bar was only twenty minutes, and the materials used were a bushel of ore and a bushel of charcoal. By this process every particle of metal can be extracted from ore and saved, in less time and at smaller expense, 
than the same ore could be roasted preparatory to crushing in a quartz mill. Copper ore can be reduced with the same facility and at the same slight expense. The furnace is a combination of principles long known to the votaries of science, but the condenser attached to it is an entirely new invention, and the credit of originating it belongs to Mrs. Hall alone. It is a large drum which sits upon the flue of the furnace, and into which all the smoke passes. A shower-bath from above thoroughly washes this smoke, and the metallic particles, which would otherwise float away upon the atmosphere, are thus arrested and precipitated to the bottom of the drum. By this means all the metal in the ore is saved, which is an achievement not hitherto compassed by any of our reduction machinery. Mrs. Hall's invention has been patented, and in a letter from the department at Washington she was assured that there was no piece of mechanism gotten up for similar purposes in the patent office, which could at all compete with this invention of hers. Let all who have the mining interest of California at heart bestow upon Mrs. Hall's smelting apparatus the attention its importance deserves. The San Francisco Daily Morning Call, September 9, 1864. Charitable Contributions. Messrs. Barry and Patton collected over a hundred dollars yesterday at their saloon in Montgomery Street for the sufferers by the explosion on the steamer Washoe. It will be forwarded to the officers of the Howard Association at Sacramento. An earnest and extended movement in this direction would produce enough money in a single day to secure to those poor flayed and mangled creatures every comfort and attention they may stand in need of, and it is proper that Sacramento should be liberally assisted in her humane work of ministering to their wants. Who will set the ball in motion? We have seen twenty thousand dollars collected in a short time in the noble little city of Memphis, Tennessee, for a similar purpose years ago. If money is wanted by the unfortunates now suffering at Sacramento, San Francisco will respond promptly and with a will. The San Francisco Daily Morning Call, September 9, 1864. Cross-Swearing. That a thing cannot be all black and all white at the same time is as self-evident as that two objects cannot occupy the same space at the same time. And when a man makes a statement under the solemn sanction of an oath, the implication is that what he utters is a fact, the verity of which is not to be questioned. Notwithstanding witnesses are so often warned of the nature of an oath, and the consequences of perjury, yet it is a daily occurrence in the police court for men and women to mount the witness-stand and swear to statements diametrically opposite. Swearing positively, leaving mere impressions out of the question, on the one hand that the horse was as black as night, and on the other that he was white as the driven snow. Two men have a fight and a prosecution for assault and battery ensues. Each party comes up prepared to prove respectively and positively the guilt and innocence of the party accused. A swears point-blank that B chased him a square and knocked him down, and exhibits wounds and blood to corroborate his statements. B brings a witness or two who saw the whole affair, from probably a distant standpoint, and he testifies that nothing connected with the fight could have escaped his observation, and that it was A who chased B a square and knocked him down, and between these two solemn statements the court has to decide. How can he do it? It is an impossibility, and thus many a culprit escapes punishment. 
There was a case in point Tuesday morning. A German named Rosenbaum prosecuted another German named Levy for running into his wagon and breaking an axle-tree. He swore that he kept as far over to the right-hand side of the street as a hole in the planking would permit, stopped his wagon when he saw the impending collision, and warned Levy off. Notwithstanding, Levy drove his vehicle against his wheel, breaking the axle, so as to require a new one which would cost twenty-five dollars. He stated also that Levy had been trying to injure him in that way for a long while. Levy brought a witness who swore that between Rosenbaum's wagon and the hole in the street there was room for a wagon or two to pass, that Rosenbaum challenged the collision, and that it was unavoidable on the part of Levy, that instead of stopping his wagon, the prosecuting witness drove ahead at a trot until the wagons became entangled, and that no damage whatever was done to Rosenbaum. On the whole, that instead of Levy running into Rosenbaum's wagon, Rosenbaum intentionally brought about the collision for the purpose of recovering damages off of Levy. The case was stronger than we have stated it, and the judge could do nothing but dismiss the matter. That there was perjury on one side was apparent, yet this is but the history of one-half the cases that are adjudicated in the police court. There should be examples made of some of these reckless swearers. It would probably have a wholesome effect." The San Francisco Daily Morning Call, September 9, 1864. Democratic Ratification Meeting. Several hundred men and boys of all political colors were gathered at the plaza last evening to see the skyrockets, look at the pictures, and hear the music and speeches. It was expected, of course, that all the apostles and prophets, saints and martyrs of the peacemakers and the constitution preservers would display themselves, no matter how diverse in their different shades of democratic conservatism, as the exponents of the party that is now vaunting its determination to wreak a terrible retribution on the members and supporters of the present administration under the leadership of George B. McClellan. While the speakers were concentrating their thoughts for the grand effort before them, the lights were suddenly extinguished and darkness became visible. The accident was ominous. Soon, however, all was ablaze again, and the work of the evening begun. Colonel Hayne was chosen to preside over the meeting. A very moderate and carefully guarded inaugural embodied his appreciation of the honor thus conferred on him, and his views in regard to the conduct and results of the forthcoming campaign. He had always been a Democrat and a thorough Union man, opposed to dismemberment under any circumstances whatever. He defined the policy of the Democratic Party, and expressed his belief that the salvation of the country lay through the Democratic Party. Colonel H. was disposed to be charitable towards his opponents, and on the whole showed that parental solicitude and the good example of Republican politicians have not been entirely lost on him. After the chairman had closed his remarks, the Honorable H. P. Barber of Tuolumne was presented to the meeting. He spoke of the humiliation of the party during the while past, but congratulated himself and his audience that the genius of civil liberty had rolled away the stone from the tomb, and the Democratic Party had come forth. He abhorred the man whose argument is vituperation and epithets in a political discussion. He challenged an impeachment of his unionism or his patriotism, deprecated this fratricidal war, arraigned the administration for nullification and negro equality, 
pointed to a democratic administration as the only hope for the restoration of the unity of the nation and the government declared his confidence in the issue of the campaign and exhorted the party to unity of action asking no quarter but to fight under the motto of victory or death he considered himself better than a negro any day mr doyle one of the electors for the state at large delivered a short address his effort was rather feeble characterized by moderation entirely unnatural to democratic speakers the whole substance of his speech was that after trying mr lincoln's administration for three and a half years the nation were satisfied that to continue it would only be to sink the country inextricably in ruin a man is needed at the head of affairs who combines the elements of civilian and soldier who knows exactly the right thing to do and the right time to do it in mcclellan is the man the mind of the speaker lit for a moment on the monroe doctrine and finally eliminated through his organs of speech in feeble tones the expression of a desire to vote for a competent man mr william t coleman responded to a call in a speech made up of a little glorification followed by the usual expressions of confidence in the result of the party vindicating his own loyalty and pointing to mcclellan as the man who is to restore our primal fraternity mr c said he was not a sycophantic peace man a clamorer for peace on any terms whatever he wanted to see a pacification between the states as speedily as possible but one based only upon honorable terms after mr coleman closed a mr hamilton was introduced and was the first speaker of the evening to cross the bounds of moderation before he exhibited his positive sympathy for the south he had begun to think that the discreet caution or sober temper of the declaimers would afford but such slight grounds for criticism beyond their usual arrogations and their reflections upon the war policy of the administration we have not space to give even an epitomized report of any of the speeches but suffice it to say that hamilton with the growing vehemence of his nervous temperament declaimed immoderately against the administration asked the people if they were prepared to respond to its bloody mandates declared that but for the fact that they saw relief in an approaching election day the opponents of the administration would have resisted with blood and that those who attempted to carry out its measures would long ere this have been in their graves the speaker grew more virulent as he progressed and sounds of dissatisfaction were heard from different persons on the stand his speech was not well received hamilton has certainly mistaken his party he can't vote for mcclellan he'd better go and get a situation in jefferson davis's cabinet his speech was the regular old stereotyped radical copperhead tirade not even excepting the attack on ministers of the gospel in appropriate order followed next c l weller his first remark was a fling at general mcdowell referring to bull run he is troubled with alcatraz on the brain he inflicted upon his hearers that exaggerated woe of his morbid imagination which he glories in parading on every possible occasion and with which he ardently hopes to create a current of sympathy and devotion which will carry him irresistibly to high political preferment we left mr weller alternating between general mcdowell and the chicago nominee 
his chief idea in approving the nomination of general mcclellan seemed to be that he could now rant vituperate and administer such counsel as he saw fit and yet vindicate his loyalty by drawing on general mcclellan's well-known patriotism and constancy to the union during one stage of the meeting two speakers divided the attention of the crowd w d sawyer esq had been called upon by some who were too remote to hear the speakers on the stand and he addressed them from the west side of the plaza end of section forty one